two versions of the moral life. The Parashav Naso contains the laws relating to the Nazarite, an individual who undertook, usually for a limited period of time, to observe special rules of holiness and abstinence, not to drink wine or other intoxicants, including anything made from grapes, not to have his hair cut, and not to defile himself by contact with the dead. The Torah doesn't make a direct evaluation of the Nazarite. On the one hand, it calls him holy to God, but on the other, it rules that when the period comes to an end, he has to bring a sin offering, as if he'd done something wrong. This led to a fundamental disagreement between the rabbis in Mishnah, Talmudic, and medieval times. According to Rabbi Elozer, and later in the Middle Ages, according to the Ramban, the Nazarite is worthy of praise. He has voluntarily chosen a higher level of holiness. The prophet Amos says, I raised some of your sons to become prophets and your young men to become Nazarites, suggesting that a Nazarite, like a prophet, is a person especially close to God. The reason he had to bring a sin offering, according to this view, is that he was now returning to ordinary life. The sin lay in ceasing to be a Nazarite. But Rabbi Elizabeth HaKapar and Shmuel held the opposite opinion. The sin lay, according to them, in becoming a Nazarite in the first place, denying himself some of the pleasures of the world God created and declared good. Rabbi Eliezer said, from this we may infer if one who denies himself the enjoyment of wine is called a sinner, all the more so one who denies himself the enjoyment of other pleasures of life. Clearly the argument is not merely textual, it's substantive. It's about asceticism, the life of self-denial. Almost every religion knows the phenomenon of people who in the spirit of uh, the search for purity, withdraw from the pleasures and temptations of the world. They live in caves, retreats, hermitages, monasteries. The Qumran set, known to us through the Dead Sea Scrolls, may have been such a movement. In the Middle Ages, there were Jews who adopted similar self-denial, among them the Hasidic Ashkenaz, the pietists of Northern Europe, as well as many Jews in Islamic lands. In retrospect, it's hard not to see in these patterns of behavior at least some influence from the non-Jewish environment. The Hasidic Ashkenaz, who flourished during the time of the Crusades, lived among self-mortifying Christians. Their southern counterparts may have been familiar with Sufism, the mystical dimension in Islam. So the ambivalence of Jews towards self-denial may therefore lie in the suspicion that it entered Judaism from the outside. There were ascetic movements in the first centuries of the Common Era, both in the West, in Greece, and in the East, in Iran, that saw the physical world as a place of corruption and strife. There were, in fact, dualists holding that the true God wasn't the creator of the universe at all. The best-known two movements to hold this view were Gnosticism in the West and Manichaeism in the East. So at least some of the negative evaluation of the Nazarite may have been driven by a desire to discourage Jews from imitating non-Jewish practices. What's more puzzling, though, is the position of the Rambam, Maimonides, who holds both views, positive and negative, and in the same book, his law code, the Mishnah Torah. In Hilchot Deot, his laws of ethical character, 
He adopts the negative position of Rabbi Eliezer HaKapa. He writes, a person may say desire, honor, and the like are bad paths to follow and remove a person from the world. Therefore, I will completely separate myself from them and go to the other extreme. As a result, he doesn't eat meat or drink wine or take a wife or leave in, live in a decent house or wear decent clothing. This too is bad and it is forbidden to choose this way. Yet in Hilchot Nazirut, in the laws of Nazarite, he rules in accordance with the positive evaluation of Rabbi Eloza. Whoever vows to God to become a Nazarite by way of holiness does well, and it is praiseworthy. Indeed, the scriptures consider him to be the equal of a prophet. Now, how does any writer come to adopt contradictory positions in a single book, let alone one as resolutely logical as Maimonides? The answer lies in one of Maimonides' most original insights. He holds that there are two quite different ways of living the moral life. He calls them respectively the way of the saint, the chassid, and the way of the sage, the chacham. The sage follows the golden mean, the middle way. The moral life is a matter of moderation and balance, charting a course between too much and too little. So, for example, courage is midway between cowardice and recklessness. Generosity bit lies between profligacy and miserliness. Now, this is Rambam's vision of the moral life in a way that's very, very similar to that of Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics. The saint, the Hasid, by contrast, doesn't follow the middle way. He or she tends to extremes, fasting rather than simply eating in moderation, embracing poverty rather than acquiring modest wealth, and so on. At various points in his writing, Maimonides explains why people might embrace extremes. One reason is repentance and character transformation. So a person might cure himself of pride by practicing for a while extreme self-abasement. Another reason is the asymmetry of the human personality. The extremes do not exert an equal pull. It's much easier to be a coward than to be reckless. It is much more common to find somebody who's miserly than somebody who's over-generous. And that's why the chassid leans in the opposite direction. The third reason is the lure of the surrounding culture which may be so opposed to religious values that pious people choose to separate themselves from the wider society. In the Rambam's words, clothing themselves in woolen and hairy garments, dwelling in the mountains and wandering about in the wilderness, differentiating themselves by extreme behavior. Now this is a very nuanced presentation. There are times for the Rambam when self-denial is therapeutic, others when it's factored into terror law itself, and yet others when it's a response to an excessively hedonistic age. In general, though, the Rambam rules that we are commanded to follow the middle way, but we are permitted to go the way of the chassid, the saint, going beyond the strict requirement of the law. Moshe Halbertal, in his recent very impressive study of the Rambam, sees him as finessing the fundamental tension between the civic idea of the Greek political tradition and the spiritual ideal of the religious radical for whom, as the Kotzka Rebbe once said, the middle of the road is for horses. 
to the Chassid, the Rambam's Chacham, can look like a self-satisfied bourgeois. Well, essentially, these are two ways of understanding the moral life itself. Is the aim of the moral life to achieve personal perfection, or is it to create a decent, just, and compassionate society? The intuitive answer of most people would be to say both. And that's what makes the Rambam so special. He realizes that you can't have both. There are, in fact, different enterprises. So, for instance, a sage, in pursuit of personal perfection, may give away all his money to the poor. But what then happens to the members of his own family? A saint may refuse to fight in battle. But then what about the saint's country, his nation? A saint may forgive all crimes committed against him. But what about the rule of law and justice? Saints are supremely virtuous people considered as individuals. Yet you cannot build a society out of saints alone. Ultimately, saints aren't really interested in society. Their concern is the salvation of the soul. This deep insight is what led the Rambam to his seemingly contradictory evaluations of the Nazir. The Nazirite has chosen, at least for a period, to adopt a life of extreme self-denial. He's a chassid, he's a saint. He's adopted the path of personal perfection, and in those terms that is noble, commendable, and exemplary. But it is not the way of the sage, and you need sages if you want to perfect society, not just your own soul. The sage isn't an extremist because he or she realizes that there are other people at stake. There are the members of your own family and the others within your own community. There's a country to defend and an economy to sustain. The sage knows that he or she cannot leave all these commitments behind to pursue a life of solitary virtue because we are called on by God to live in the world, not escape from it. We're called to live in society, not in seclusion. We're called on to strive to create a balance among the conflicting pressures on us, not to focus on some while neglecting the others. So, from a personal perspective, the Nazarite is a saint, but if from a societal perspective, he is, at least figuratively, a sinner who has to bring an atonement offering. Of course, Maimonides lived the life he preached. We know from his writings that he longed to be a chassid, to be secluded. There were years when he worked day and night to write his commentary to the Mishnah and later the Mishnah Torah, Yet he also recognized his responsibilities to his family and to the community. In his famous letter to his would-be translator Ibn Tibbon, he gives him an account of his typical day and week in which he had to carry a double burden as a world-renowned physician and an internationally sought halachist and sage. He worked to exhaustion. There were times when he was also almost too busy to study from one week to the next. Maimonides was a sage who longed to be a saint. But he knew he couldn't be, if he was to honour his responsibilities to his people. That seems to me a profound judgment, and one still very relevant to Jewish life today.